Look, Bumble knows you're exhausted by dating. All the, must not take yourself too seriously, and 6-1 since that matters, and what do I even say other than, hey? <sighs> well, that's why they're introducing an all-new Bumble. With exciting features to make compatibility easier, starting the chat better, and dating safer. They've changed, so you don't have to. Download the new Bumble now. When you turn on the nightly news, what usually leads? Sometimes it's civic matters, a local referendum, corruption at the water district. But often, it's violence. And it's that violence that consumers want, and editors in newsrooms often prioritize. And I don't need to tell you, you know, all my true crime fans, how much stories of violence and crime have permeated our culture. Sometimes for our entertainment, but not without consequences. How we seem to place front and center stories of violence. A shooting, a five-car pileup, the portrait of a missing girl. One of my first jobs when I was a reporter in local news was to do very much that. What happened overnight? That's the journalist Soledad O'Brien. She's reported stories and anchored for NBC and CNN. She started her own production company, Soledad O'Brien Productions, in 2013. Her early jobs asked her to tell stories that were often... Grizzly. And what's often easy to report on that happened overnight is a bridge collapse, an accident, a terrible shooting, a meth lab explodes. You can visualize the tease on the screen. Eight people dead, including two children, apartment fire. But sometimes it's not even local. It's 300 miles away. But the salacious details, they hook you. And I think you have a point of view. It's scary and it's bad. Being hit by a car in the middle of the night, bad. Someone breaking into your house, bad. A meth lab, bad. It took me a long time before I realized the kind of reporting that I wanted to do was not just updating everybody on, you know, here's the scary thing that happened yesterday. These stories can start to inform our ideas of violent crime, make us think that violence is all around us. But we still like to watch these stories on TV, hear them on podcasts, and go down Reddit wormholes. Soledad does it too. I love the show Criminal Minds. Love it. And one of my, I wouldn't even call it my guilty pleasures, but I used to just watch it all the time, especially during the pandemic. You know, I'd just stay up at night and watch Criminal Minds. A friend of mine is a producer. And I would tell him, oh my gosh, it's just made me completely paranoid about serial killers. (laughs) When I walk my dog at night, I'm like, I wonder if there's a serial killer lurking in the woods, which of course, knowing the data around serial killers is highly, highly unlikely, right? But we know the more you cover it and the way you cover it, it gives you a sense that it's prevalent and not only prevalent, that it's happening every day, all day, all the time. It skews people's sense of reality because the media doesn't say, hey, listen, I'm gonna tell you a story, but it's actually quite rare. Doing these stories day in and day out, it can affect you. You start to feel like an ambulance chaser. Or, even worse, that there's no amount of violence that will sate us. And this takes its toll on audiences for sure, but also on the people who have to report this stuff in all its gruesome detail. 
When reporters push back, wanting to tell more nuanced stories, sometimes it's met with cynicism. Even reporters like Soledad O'Brien, with more than 20 years' experience under her belt. I'll give you the last story that I pitched right before I left CNN. I said, you know, we should do a doc that looks at poverty in America. That's because, you know, I think many people don't realize that the face of homelessness here in New York City is not what you might think. It's not a scary guy who's walking up and down the street mumbling to himself. It's a mom and her kids. And the face of poverty is often people who, who work one job, but maybe two jobs or more. And he said to me, he's my boss, ew, who'd want to look at that? Soledad dealt with her frustrations by leaving, starting her own production company and deciding on the stories she wanted to tell. But it's not that simple for everyone. It can be hard, especially when you first start your career, to assert yourself. To feel like you have control over your work and you're not just a hamster on a bad, bad news hamster wheel. Rewind a few decades and a certain woman became emblematic of this. Of this desire for violent headlines and its implications on the people who make it. Her name was Christine. Christine Chubbuck. Who was a local news personality in Sarasota, Florida in the 1970s, who had a host of personal and professional issues or demons she was battling that culminated ultimately with her taking her own life live on the air in the summer of 1974. My name is Craig Shilowich, and I wrote and produced the 2016 movie Christine. It was important to Shilowich to not just have Christine be defined by her death, to show her as a three-dimensional person, to unpack the issues she was wrestling with the best he could. He also could relate to her. He had his own mental health struggles in his 20s. And he started out making indie films. The pressures on small filmmakers are really similar to local news. You're underfunded. You always feel behind. Just like the station Christine worked at. And they were always sort of last in the ratings and scrambling to keep up. And their equipment was always breaking down. So as a working film professional, I sort of identified with that too. In the film, Christine is often sparring with the station manager, Michael, played by Tracy Letts. She wants to do meteor stories. She wants to cover zoning issues or do public health investigations. But he is dealing with directives from up top. They need eyeballs. And what draws more eyes? Footage of real-life tragedy. Uh, fire just called. Pickup truck went off the road on Orangeville. Chubbuck, can you get out there, please? Uh, no. Sorry, I can't. Okay. I mean, you can't. Tracy Letts is trying to impart to his station members that they're a sinking ship. They're a failing operation. And if they don't do something, none of them are going to have jobs anymore. So therefore, what does it hurt to try to chase these stories that we know from bigger networks are getting more and more of the share? And Christine is always rebutting him by saying, well, that's not what this town is. That's not who we are. That's not who I am as a reporter. And if it's sort of selling the soul of the station to reflect something that's not even a reality down here, what are we doing? 
People could be dying out there. Mike, it's fender bender reporting. It's demeaning. I have been very clear that I am doing issue-oriented or character-based pieces. Very, very clear. Thank you for your clearness. It's too dry. (laughs) We got to liven things up around here. Mike doesn't just want his reporters capturing their stories with stills. He wants footage. It's a simple concept, guys. If it bleeds, it leads. I think it's kind of an apocryphal phrase. I don't know where it came from. But in the 70s, this was definitely becoming more of a mandate. And I think it was trickling down from the national news arena where you were seeing violent footage from the Vietnam War in the late 60s and the early 70s. So for the first time, Americans were being confronted with real war imagery and not heroic troops pre-filmed and edited storming the beaches of Normandy. Technology was advancing. You had mobile units and live cameras at the ready. We weren't watching wartime edited down to a few clips. We were seeing death and destruction live. But in the Vietnam War, they were showing real scenes from the war broadcast live, coffins coming home. So Americans were staring real violence in the face and it it affected the outcome of the war. And we see that in the film Christine. And Mike's concerns are real. The station's numbers are in the toilet. And in order for them to tell the stories they want to tell, the station needs to make money. They need to have jobs. Hear me when I say that. We need higher ratings. How do we get them? Juicier stories. That's what this episode is about. How the hunt for juicy stories can lead us down a dark path. We start to think that these stories define our communities, define our worlds. And it doesn't just hurt the people consuming these stories, it hurts the people making them too. From Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment, I'm Mariah Smith. And this is Spectacle True Crime. Hey, it's Kaylee Cuoco for Priceline. Ready to go to your happy place for a happy price? Well, why didn't you say so? Just download the Priceline app right now and save up to 60% on hotels. So whether it's Cousin Kevin's Kazoo concert in Kansas City, go Kevin! Or Becky's Bachelorette Bash in Bermuda, you never have to miss a trip ever again. So download the Priceline app today. Your savings are waiting. Go to your happy place for a happy price. Go to your happy price, Priceline. Do you ever wonder how celebrities order food? Like, is Sarah Paulson a Diet Coke or a regular Coke girlie? (laughs) Some peasant Coke? No. Or how does Sofia Vergara order a pizza? No, no, no tomatoes. I cannot eat tomatoes. tomatoes? Are you killed mushrooms? Not really. (laughs) If these are the details you need, and I know you do, I have the podcast for you. I'm Jesse Tyler Ferguson, and on my podcast, Dinners on Me, I take some notable friends of mine out to dinners in Los Angeles and New York City. Listen wherever you get your podcasts. That thing was delicious. 
When Craig Shilowich first started researching for Christine, he went to Sarasota, Florida. He wanted to see if he could find people who knew Christine. A lot of her family had already died before I even started this process. But a lot of her co-workers, because she died very young, she was 29 when she took her own life. These were all people that were largely still living in Florida, a stone's throw from the station. So I sat and I, you know, took them out for pie and coffee and just got them to tell me stories about themselves and her. Through those interviews, he got a feel for Christine as a person. She had this duality. She was intense, driven. She had really high standards. That could sometimes take the shape of her punishing herself or other people or pushing people away because they weren't performing at either a personal or professional level to the standards she had. She was outspoken about her mental health issues and made self-deprecating jokes. But there was another side to her, too. A sweet side. She was loyal and had a good heart. Loved giving gifts and did a lot of charity work in the area. She was famous for doing these weekly puppet shows at a children's orphanage in the area. Those two sides caused an internal friction that she had a hard time reconciling. She didn't want to compromise her values, but she also wanted to make it as a news reporter. And we see those tensions play out in the film. I thought I'd bring in my producer, Joanna Clay, to dig more into the film. So Christine, like we've said, is set in the early 70s. The film stylistically has a very obviously retro feel to it. Imagine the set of Anchorman, but not a comedy. A lot of rust, a lot of brown, burnt orange, long hair, sideburns. You know, you get it. Yeah, I mean, I will say I was very impressed by like... It felt like a natural look to the 70s. You know, clearly I wasn't there, thank God. But it felt like one of the more natural takes on what a 70s newsroom would look like. Even the cameras, like we mentioned before, the technology mm-hmm. was swiftly changing. And like the the mobile cameras they had that were the size of a toddler. But even <laughs> things like little details like that were very fascinating. Totally, totally. So Christine, to kind of put in perspective, like this moment that the movie's capturing Christine Chubbuck was working in broadcast news during a few cultural shifts. You have a lot more women entering the workforce, and you're starting to see them behind the camera more on these shows. And then there's this shift to live TV. And kind of the big blip on the timeline for that shift was 1963, when JFK was assassinated. In Dallas, Texas, three shots were fired at President Kennedy's motorcade in downtown Dallas, The first reports say that President Kennedy has been seriously wounded by this shooting. Yeah, and with that, it's like I think that was a consumer's and viewer's first taste of someone being live on the scene of a crime right after it happened. Mm -hmm. And so that, knowing that that was possible and that our newscasters and our technology and media was capable of that, once you see it, you want it more. Yes, yeah, totally. That was a seminal moment in media history, in political history, and you could even say true crime history, like you were saying. I know it's one of those moments, like, for my parents, to them, like, they're 9-11 in a way, because they know exactly where they were when they heard about it. They remember coming home from school, watching it on TV, and that was a key thing, watching it 
on TV because all of a sudden, newspapers weren't the place that you went to automatically. All of a sudden, it was television. Television could give you the most current information. Yeah, and I think it's important to point out that at that point, again, we say it was a truly a turning point because at that time in history, there was one TV and 90% of homes. And to put that into perspective, that's now 99% of people have TVs in their homes. And I'm not talking just one TV. For me personally, I have three. I live alone, <laughs> yet I have three TVs. So that's the type of elevation we're talking about. So if people were that ravenous back then when they had one little TV that everyone was gathering around. Imagine how things have continued to be on the rise since. Totally. I'm single. I live alone. I have two TVs. (laughs) Love my televisions. So like we were saying before, the key word to the JFK coverage was live. The major networks at the time covered the nation in mourning and the days after his death live. And as Craig mentioned, the Vietnam War was kind of the next big turning point because instead of being reactionary, like the aftermath of JFK's assassination, now all of a sudden we were part of the action. You were seeing the war play out before your very eyes, unedited. And that is the undercurrent of what was happening. Imagine you're this small news station trying to make it and you have actual wartime footage being aired on larger networks. You're doing the best you can to keep up with that need and keep up with that content. And we see Christine in the film and I imagine in real life sort of wrestling with these frustrations of trying to make good television, be a good producer, be a good reporter, while also being a good person and not exploit people in her life, especially in the town she lives in, in Sarasota. And I think that is a fascinating thing to think about because a lot of women, a lot of people in media struggle with this because you want to do well. You're a woman in a business that women are very new to in this time of history. And she's truly a trailblazer. She's a woman in broadcast news. And she knows she has to earn her stripes and move up the ladder to this larger market to tell stories she wants to tell. But at the same time, she's impatient and tired of exploiting people in her community. Totally. And It's kind of this tricky balance because she calls it fender bender reporting. She's very cynical about it. She's very idealistic about journalism and what she wants to do. But I think she also starts to realize as she's going head to head with Mike that she can't be combative 24-7. Like if she wants to make it at this station, if she wants to move up, she needs to get along with them. She needs to get more opportunities. And so she hears whispers about a job opening in a larger market in Baltimore. And of course, you know, she's interested. Mike level with me. I haven't led in over a month now. Tell me what I have to do to get to Baltimore. Now, so in this scene, Christine is in Mike's office and he's eating his lunch while standing in front of a TV. And he's watching this news segment and it's a series on fat people, something about junk food and shock therapy. It truly sounds awful and shows me we've come not far enough in terms of body positivity. Yeah, no. And he's watching this completely enthralled. He thinks this segment is amazing. And... When Christine is like, so what do I have to do to get some opportunities around here? He's like, why not try to get me something like this? Because this is totally at odds with the work that I've been doing, Mike. (laughs) It's exploitative. 
then why are so many people watching it? The thing with both Mike and Christine is they both have very binary thinking. You know, he's thinking because people are watching it, it can't be that bad. And Christine's thinking because it's sensationalistic, it can't have value. And truly, it's like watching two rocks who have no nuance try to fight. Nothing's going to change. Christine is, to me, very American in, in her sort of black and white thinking. Like, you're either good or you're evil or we're doing highbrow work or we're a joke. Mike, her station manager, provides, you know, the other half of that dichotomy. They're really foils to one another. And I don't think either one is right or wrong. They're just both completely stuck. So after that conversation about Baltimore, Christine realizes she's at an impasse. She can't keep saying no to the quote-unquote juicy stories. If she wants to make an impact, she needs to get to a larger market. And if she wants to go to a larger market, she needs to do stories that people want to watch. And Christine is savvy. So what she does is she tries to find the things Mike wants. And in this scene that we're about to hear, she goes into a police station. She sits down with the police captain and tries to level with them. So I'm looking to run some grittier stuff for my segment. Grittier? Okay. Yeah, she's like, I want grittier stuff. And so Christine is fully leaning in at this point. She tells him, look. Crime is on the rise. There were two armed robberies and four burglaries in the last month. And he's like, actually, you know, that's an anomaly. And if you look over time, there actually isn't a rise. And are you okay? Did something happen to someone you know? Because you can tell me. No. I just need to... to show the darker side of Sarasota. Find a, a, a darker angle. She's hoping to pursue grittier stories to advance her standing at the station. And the police officer sort of just blinks at her and he, he doesn't understand the ask. And he says, sure, there's crime here. There's crime everywhere. But there's not a defined dark side of Sarasota. Like he, he doesn't quite understand the question. It doesn't compute for him. And she's grasping at straws. Christine isn't put off by this cop, though. She's convinced that she's going to find this dark side of Sarasota. So she decides to buy a police scanner. And, you know, the little lights go off and she hears people on the radio. She's furiously taking notes of everything they're saying, which is incredibly mundane. <laughs> if you could uh, just go over to Island Park, there's those kids that have been loitering around the last couple weeks. If you could just, you know, shine your flashlight or whatever over. But in a way, you know, the scanner, it really becomes a mirror, I would say, to the emotional state that Christine is currently in. You know, it's a very manic desire to achieve her dreams. It's fast-paced, it's confusing, and she's really trying to go through all this to get what Mike wants so she can move up and go to Baltimore. Yes. But then, you know, she has a scanner going constantly in her room, she finally hears something, something that seems like, okay, this could be a story. 5-3250, But of course, Christine does this breaking news story in her own unique way. Instead of focusing her camera on the fire, she hones in on a banged up man in the back of an ambulance who burned himself going back into the building for cigarettes. And Christine is totally convinced that this will be the story to impress Mike and this will turn things around and be the key point in her career. And we have a clip of how that went. Mike, that's exactly what you've been asking for. It was 
was raw. And the man had an irony to him. We're not making irony. We're making news. I mean, where was any footage of the smoldering house? At least that would be something. You just showed his face. What's funny about Christine is that she wants to be an ambulance chaser. <laughs> she would love to be an ambulance chaser because that's what sort of the, her station is asking of her. But she can't because she's both not cut out for it temperamentally. And those stories aren't there in the volume that they would need to be in order to, you know, make it your bread and butter. Christine struggles to reconcile these factors, and eventually it comes to a head. What happened to Christine and what we can learn from it? Next. In the film, Christine is definitely a workaholic. And I mean, it's relatable. She's in her late 20s, and that's a time when many of us are working our butts off. But she's isolated. She lives with her mom, doesn't have many friends, and even when she's off and watching TV, she's not really off. She's still scribbling story ideas down on a notepad. And as we mentioned, tensions are escalating at the station. Things aren't great with Mike. She's mad he's not taking her ideas seriously. And so, she comes to him to make peace. You're not going anywhere, and I'm not going anywhere. So I would like to wipe the slate clean. I'll read anything you like. What is this? What are you doing? She sees he has a point. It just took her a second to realize it. And then she asks for the opportunity to co-anchor the desk. You can report whatever comes in over the weekend. Whatever I say. Thank you. I mean, you say please, it's nice. Please, I can work with. She had said she wanted to report the news, but there was more to it than that. Departing from a script that she'd prepared for herself where she's talking about, you know, some sensational blood and guts reporting, a bar fight, someone had been stabbed the previous night, and they were in the hospital, and they were in intensive care. And then she attempted to show some video of the crime scene, but her low-budget station, the film jammed up when they tried to load it, so it wouldn't run, so there was like a technical difficulty. So she promised to show the video on an, on a different night, and then she went to a different script that she'd prepared just for herself that no one had seen and said, In keeping with the WZRB policy, Don't give up on it. Presenting the most immediate it. and complete reports of local blood and guts, TV30 presents what is believed to be a television first. In living color, an exclusive coverage of an attempted suicide. And she took out a gun and shot herself in the back of the head. Her co-anchor is sitting at the desk next to her. Her friend Jean is behind the camera. They think it's a joke at first, and then they walk up to her and they realize it's not. It was this wild moment in reality, and it's a really scary, sad moment in the film where she's both giving them what they want and finally delivering on this mandate, which in many ways put this podunk news station on the map and did sort of play into what her station director was asking her. But it was also this, you know, it was, she killed herself. 
Christine didn't kill herself in the privacy of her home. She did it on TV. It was designed to be consumed. She scripted things for her co-anchor to say after her death. She asked Jean to record the show for her reels. She wanted it documented. You could say she was a troubled person, she was a depressed person, she wasn't thinking clearly. That wasn't the most appropriate or constructive way to stage that protest, but, and all of that is true. But that is what she did, and that is explicitly what she was calling out. So sort of sidestep that or talk around that misses her point, which is that this was a big factor in her thinking, even if her thinking was distorted. Her death, in many ways, was treated the same way the station treated its grisly headlines. It didn't see the person behind the tragedy. It saw dollar signs. So what happened to the tape after she killed herself? It's rumor and hearsay, and I only know what people have told me, so take this with a grain of salt. But I heard from multiple people that the station owner or station director, after she shot herself in the head, started making as many copies of it as he could and was trying to sell it to the highest bidder and that people within the station sort of had to intervene and put a stop to it because this guy's plan was to, yeah, like sell the tape to, you know, ABC or one of the networks for as much money as he could get. The tape continues to be an object of fascination, considered this holy grail of death footage. Sort of only further proves her point that there was a rush to make this a commodity you know, after she shot herself. I think it means that she was exactly right about some of this. Christine was candid about her depression. She was medicated. She went to therapy. But sometimes her humor could be confusing. She joked, or so it seemed, about killing herself. It's a really disarming, unsettling situation. And unless you're really, really close with a person like that, it might be easier to just look the other way. And the thing about Christine and the thing about a lot of people with issues like she had is they push people away. It's a feature of their character that they sort of alienate and keep people at arm's length. Looking back, there were warning signs. According to local news reports, she had joked about killing herself to a colleague that week. Her colleague, Rob Smith, a fellow news reporter, said Christine told him about a pistol she bought. When he asked for what, she said, Well, Rob, I had this real nifty idea. I thought I would bring it to work and blow myself away during the talk show. But it was hard for people to know if she was serious. Rob said she always said weird things. Her mother, who she lived with, said nothing had happened within the last couple weeks that would have prompted her to kill herself. Her brother called it a culmination of lots of things. Among the things sheriff's deputies found was the dummy script she wrote for her colleagues to read. The script said Christine Chubbuck shot herself on the live broadcast. It talked about her being transported to a local hospital. She said she'd be in critical condition. And that's what happened. So when we were putting out the movie and figuring out how to market it, we sent it around to a bunch of trailer houses to cut theatrical two-minute trailer for the movie. And one of the companies that bid on it, the head of the company 
claimed that he knew Christine personally. And we thought that it was some sort of miscommunication or misunderstanding. But it turns out that this guy, Rob Smith, who went by Smitty, was actually an employee of the news station and a friend and confidant of Christine Chubbuck's back in the 70s when he was like, you know, a 19, 20-year-old kid, basically. Yes, that same Rob Smith from those old news clippings. The colleague she told about the gun. Shilowich had spent years trying to find him, but Rob Smith is a pretty common name. And now, not only did he find him, but they were going to make this movie trailer together. In tribute to his friend. He got to talk to Smith and hear his stories. And he said, for whatever it's worth, that he thought we did a, a good job of depicting her. The film didn't end with Christine's death. It showed the aftermath, the impact of her colleagues, including her closest friend, Jean. Jean was someone Christine could relate to. They had things in common and common aspirations but their perspectives were different. Jean was optimistic. When she got down, she'd sing a song to feel better. Something she'd recommend to Christine, but that just wasn't Christine. The very final scene of the film is with Jean. She's at home. It looks like the evening, and she's watching TV. It's dark, and you can just see her face lit up by the screen. You can't see what she's watching, but you know the theme song. It's the Mary Tyler Moore Show, which was a newswoman in her 20s or 30s would have watched and loved that show. And it was about, you know, sort of this hardworking, plucky American news worker named Mary Tyler Moore, who famously was promised she could have it all. And I think that's is a little bit of a lie. <laughs> a lie because, well... Can we really have it all? They only can just keep putting one foot in front of the other, and Christine couldn't get by. She couldn't have it all. She couldn't let herself go on. And then Jean has a bowl of ice cream and a song to sing along to, and that's all that kind of she has as a life raft to cling to. Christine carried the world on her shoulders. But the world didn't end when Christine died. People like the genes of the world kept pushing forward, hopeful that someday they could tell the stories they would like to tell. If we can pull anything from the film and Christine's life, maybe it's acknowledging that this obsession we have for stories about axe murderers, bank robberies, or cars careening down cliffs, this obsession has consequences. Consequences we cannot ignore. Next time on Spectacle. People like me and you are solving crimes. Or at least trying to. I mean, think about it. They can't monitor the internet. There's no, like, national monitor the internet for crazy people. Do you know what I mean? There's nothing like that. Citizen sleuths are stepping in to piece together the clues to a case. They use Facebook, Reddit, 4chan to share the evidence they find. But what happens when they take these clues a little too far? And somebody from 4chan 
decided, I'm gonna go knock on that person's door, find out what the hell's going on. And I was like, whoa, okay, this is a minor, probably. You know, I didn't know for sure. Like, this is scary. Sure, sometimes they can do more harm than good. But then, there's the cases when they're the only ones looking, the only ones seeking justice. So we were on like the porch of the Montreal Police Department in February going, dude, he's saying he's gonna kill people, you guys have to do something. Yeah, someone was murdered. More on that next week. If you own a vehicle with less than 200,000 miles and have an auto warranty about to expire or no warranty coverage at all, listen up. CarShield has a low-cost, month-to-month vehicle protection plan that covers more parts than ever. Visit carshield.com audio to find out how you could pay almost nothing for covered auto repairs. Drivers who activate this vehicle protection today will also receive free roadside assistance, free towing, and car rental options at no additional cost. Get your free quote today at carshield.com audio. That's carshield.com audio. Spectacle True Crime is a production of Neon Hum Media and Sony Music Entertainment. It's hosted by yours truly. Our showrunner is Joanna Clay. Our executive producer is Jonathan Hirsch. Samantha Allison is our production manager. Liz Sanchez is our associate producer. Sound design by Hans Dale Shee. Original music by Asha Ivanovich. Additional cues from Blue Dot Sessions and Epidemic Sound. Our fact checker is Stephen Crichton. Special thanks to Carla Green, Shara Morris, and Catherine St. Louis. I'm Mariah Smith. See you next week. <laughs>